Brother Nolan, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. It's good to be here today and to have the opportunity. You know, this is an opportunity, an opportunity to praise God again. And it's an opportunity that we ought to look forward to. You know, there are some things that you look forward to during the week, and there are some things that you don't, right? A lot of folk don't look forward to going to work. <laughs> but, uh, but we look forward to getting paid, don't we? If a person is off on payday and you receive a paper check, something wrong with you. Yeah, you, you sick for real. But most folk don't miss payday. They'll go in sick for payday. And we need to get the same way about in service to the Lord. That we don't allow things that ought not stand in the way to stand in the way of our worship together. For this is a very important hour. And there are people all over the world who long for an hour like this and who just don't have it. I thank God for those who participated in the worship up to this point. My prayer is that their service rendered went up before God as a sweet-smelling savor. Because as he looked into their hearts, he saw that they were worshiping in spirit and in truth. That they were given the very best effort they have. And uh, that will be enough. I don't know if that's enough for you, but that's certainly enough for God. God just asks that we do our very best when we are worshiping him. I'm uh, going to do something out of the ordinary this morning. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of times when I come up here and I read what I've prepared and what I've typed up. But every week when I prepare lessons, I really go to God. And I ask him to show me what he wants me to do as it regards what we are studying. When we, we've been talking about the 12 apostles and we have come to the final one in terms of Paul, who was really the 13th apostle, called out of due season. There's so much to talk about with Saul that I had to ask the Lord several weeks, Lord, how, how should I handle it this week? And that week the Lord said, well, talk about Saul, uh, the chief of sinners. And then another week he said, well, this week you may want to focus in on his thorn in the flesh. And then another week it may be, well, you may want to focus in on how he persecuted the church. This time I said, well, Lord, I'm finishing up Saul this week. And I don't know just how I want to finish it up, but I know where I want to go. And in comes house to house, heart to heart. And the main article, what Saul saw when he couldn't see. I don't know how you take that, but I taught that. I take that as an answer to my prayer from God. God said, how about I just send you something? <laughs> something you don't even have to study the way you would normally have to study because Alan Webster has already put it out there for you. How about I send you something? And you know a lot of folk can't take stuff like this because they didn't have anything to do with it. But I have no shame whatsoever in saying to you today, I'm going to read this to you, and I didn't put a word in him. Not a period. Not a comma, not a passage of scripture. What I did do is read it through many times to make sure that it corresponded with the word of God. See, because I'm about more than just the title of a lesson. I want to know the content. <laughs> is it in keeping with what's in the word of God? I'm getting ready to read it to our people. I need to make sure it's right. And I want to ask you to follow along with us this morning as we read it. I want to apologize to you for reading it, but it's only for reading it. I don't want to apologize for the content. And uh, I want to thank God for using Alan Webster, who is the staff writer 
for house to house, heart to heart. And I think that he did an excellent job. And you know, things that I can't improve on, I leave them alone and pass them on. And that's what I'm doing this morning. I can't improve on this. So I'm giving to you just like it is. Let's, let's follow along in the light of Galatians chapter 1. You know, there Paul records how his conversion, after, what happened after his conversion. And basically what he says is, after I met the Lord and after I was converted, I didn't confer with flesh and blood. I didn't go to talk to my friends about it. And when I met Jesus, I didn't go and talk to my brothers and sisters about it. But he says, I went off into Arabia because I got this thing directly from Jesus. Nobody taught me this in a school. I went and it was revealed directly to me from the Lord. And I'm giving it to you as it was revealed to me. Those of you who stand outside of the ark of safety today would do well to listen very carefully. Now, is everyone here in possession of a copy of this who'd like to have a copy? We didn't have enough copies for every person to have one, but every household should have one. Anybody here without a copy and you'd like to have one, somebody will gratefully give theirs up for you. There's one back there. Okay, raise your hand, raise your hand, especially if you're not a member here and you want to study along with us and you want to take this with you afterwards. It's a rich study in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and it is probably one of the most uh, referred to conversions in all of the scriptures. The note underneath the sermon title says that the Bible records the conversion of Saul to Christianity three times. In Acts chapter 9, 22, and 26. It says, please take time to read these with this article. You won't be able to do that today, but you're certainly encouraged to do it once you get home. Saul of Tarsus later became known as Paul the Apostle. Acts 13, 9. The names are used interchangeably here. The Apostle Paul's eyes have been the subject of much speculation. Many believe his thorn in the flesh was poor eyesight, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. This is based on the willingness of the Galatians to pluck out their eyes for him in Galatians chapter 4, verse 15. On the road to Damascus, a great light shined upon Saul, and in the light he saw Jesus. After this vision, he was three days without sight, according to Acts 9.9. Christ then sent Ananias to heal him and teach him the gospel, Acts 9.17.18. During these three dark days, Saul saw a lot he had never seen with his eyes open. The eyes of his understanding were opened, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. But what did Saul see when he couldn't see? The first thing Saul saw was that Jesus is the Son of God. Prior to this trip, Saul flatly rejected Jesus' claim to deity. Being firmly convinced he was another imposter in a long line of usurpers. A hater, Saul left Jerusalem an intellectual skeptic, a hater of Jesus, and an enemy of every Christian. Acts chapter 26, verses 10 and 11. Saul made an amazing transformation, practically overnight. He left home a Jewish Pharisee and returned a Christian missionary. He flipped from the church's fiercest opponent to his greatest proponent. He switched from arguing against Jesus as the Christ to defending his deity in the same synagogues. Acts 9.20. 
can Saul's remarkable change be explained? Well, when a prominent Pharisee suddenly turns his back on his religion, family, education, career, peers, and nation, there must be a reason. This conversion is a great puzzle to skeptics. They advance three dubious theories to explain it. Dubious means hard to be accepted as truth. Hard to be believed. Here's the first. There are some people who just won't accept that this happened according to the scriptures. So they propose certain theories. Here's the first. That Saul was a liar who made up the vision entirely. Well, what motive would Saul have in lying and making up this vision? People lie for money, but this made Paul poor. 1 Corinthians 4.11. People lie for popularity, but this made Paul unpopular. Acts chapter 4, verses 12, or 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13. People lie for prestige, but this made others think Paul was a fool, according to 1 Corinthians 4, 9 and 13. People lie to avoid pain, suffering, and death, but this caused Paul all three according to 1 Corinthians 4 and 9, 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, and 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, where he reminds us that he's fought a good fight and there is a crown laid up for him. The second theory is this, that Saul was deceived by the apostles who had invented the legend of Jesus' resurrection. Legends take time to develop, though, huh? But Jesus' resurrection was taught immediately, within 50 days. That is, Pentecost is where the gospel sermon was preached for the first time. Acts chapter 2, verses 24 and 32. This didn't take the time that it normally takes for a legend to develop. This happened immediately. Paul's writings show an independent thinker and an educated scholar unlikely to gullibly follow untrained fishermen and tax collectors. Acts chapter 4 verse 13. Paul said he received his doctrine directly from Jesus according to our scriptural text this morning, Galatians chapter 1 verse uh, 11 and 12 and 13, and did not even meet the other apostles for three years according to chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 of Acts. Or Galatians, I'm sorry. And then the last theory is that Saul went insane with guilt for killing Stephen. Worldly Festus, you remember Festus, who saw religion as a superstition, according to Acts chapter 25, verse 19, first made this accusation that Paul was mad. He interrupted the apostle, asserting that much learning had made Paul mad. Paul calmly pointed to his speech as evidence of his sanity. He said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Acts chapter 26 Verse 25, Paul's writings are not those of a madman, but they reflect a structured, logical, disciplined mind. The quarter century he spent as a missionary shows a focused purpose that defies insanity. His social relationships, and he mentions about a hundred co-workers in his writings, show one respected by his peers and capable of functioning successfully in a complex world. Christianity's explanation is more plausible than any of those. Saul changed because he saw the resurrected Jesus. And when Jesus identified himself in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, when he said, Saul, uh, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul said, Lord, who art thou? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. Saul then, trembling and astonished, 
said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Chapter 9, verse 6 of the book of Acts. The blasphemer had become a worshiper now. After the empty tomb and the New Testament itself, Saul's conversion may be the greatest proof of Christ's deity. Secondly, Saul saw that he should help people instead of hurt them. Judaism in Saul's time was violent. Christians were arrested, according to Acts chapter 4, verses 3, verse 3, and Acts chapter 5, verse 18. Murderous plots were contemplated, Acts chapter 5, verse number 33. Stephen was brought up on false charges and stoned by an angry mob in Acts chapter 7, verses 58 through 60. There was a great persecution against the church at Jerusalem. We read about that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Christians were chased from city to city. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Saul joined in wholeheartedly. He gave his consent to the number or to the murder of Stephen and others, according to Acts 7, 58 and 2016. He breathed out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples and made havoc of the church. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and chapter 8, verse 3. He dragged Christians, Lord have mercy, men and women to prison. He punished them often in synagogues and compelled them to blaspheme. He was exceedingly mad, as it were, and persecuted Christians near and far. According to Acts 26, 11, where Christians uh, uh, were continuing their plight to preach Jesus and Saul was uh, still persecuting uh, left and right. During his three days in darkness, Saul came to see that his violent religion was wrong. He came to see that his violent religion was wrong. He should love people, not hate them. John 13, 34 and 35. He should help them, not hurt them. Galatians 6, 10. He should free them, not incarcerate them. Luke 4.18, but once Saul became a Christian, he never lifted a finger against those of any other religion. He taught and persuaded, but never coerced or persecuted. He was willing to spend and be spent for others, even if he was not loved in return. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Christianity, folk, is a peaceful religion. That's why we often say to you, teach the truth in love. Don't get involved in arguments with people. Don't get involved in that joking back and forth about who's right and who's wrong. The Bible is right. So once we read that, just let it be what it is. There is no need to argue. Christianity is peaceful. It's based on the gospel of peace. Romans chapter 10, verse 15. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, 6. Never raised a violent fist against another, even when he was assaulted. He was peaceful. The Bible says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, that when the Lord was reviled, he didn't revile again. That when he was threatened, he didn't threaten in return. And I know some of you right now are going to Matthew 21. Because you say, well, wait a minute now. It says that he never raised a violent hand toward anybody. Well, in Matthew 13, 21, 12 and 13 is where he cast people out of the temple. Don't get that confused with Jesus raising a violent fist to attack anybody. Jesus said, you have heard that my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The Bible said he didn't uppercut nobody. He didn't gut punch nobody. The Bible says he turned over their tables and he cast them out of the temple. 
He didn't do the kind of per persecuting that Saul was doing. That's why they ought to put it here to distinguish between the Saul that we are being introduced to and the Jesus that he would eventually follow. Jesus didn't condone violence. It was Jesus who taught us if a man smites you on one cheek, turn the other. That's not a violent man. That's not a violent teaching. But the Bible says that he, he, was a, he was a prince, as it were, of peace. Never raised his hand violently to any man. Never owned a sword. Uh-huh. How many of you have owned one of them yellow-handled cases since you've been a Christian? <laughs> now go on out and bought you a Smith & Wesson. Mm-hmm. Lord have mercy and got quiet. Jesus never owned a sword, he says. He never smote an enemy. He never sued a foe. His true followers today imitate his peaceful behavior. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. That's all right. Brother Webster, they're not saying amen to me. Just like I, they, they don't do sometime when I'm preaching myself. They, 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 they got a problem with yours too. But the truth is the light. And the truth shall set you free. The Bible says Jesus was a peaceful man. While Christians earnestly contend for the faith, according to Jude 1.3, they do so with words, not weapons. Evangelism is done by teaching and reason, according to Matthew 28.19. Never by threat or violence. Christians seek to follow peace with everybody, according to Hebrews 11, uh, Hebrews 12.14 and Romans 12.18. Any religion that teaches Followers to hate unbelievers and to force conversion by threat of physical harm does not deserve a seat at the table in the marketplace of ideas. A few have marched under a false flag and committed violence in Christ's name. The Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades come to mind. Yet these never did so at his behest. Jesus never asked anybody to hurt or to kill anybody else. And they will face his gavel at the last tribunal, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33. But not only that, while, Paul, while Saul's eyes were closed, Saul saw there is life after death. Before Damascus, Saul held to the Pharisees' party line that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body. Matthew 28, 13 is one of the things that they put out there. After Damascus, he taught, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? This is the same Saul that held to the Pharisees' doctrine that Jesus never resurrected from the dead but that his body was stolen by the disciples to make it look like he had been resurrected from the dead. And here is this same Saul, now Paul, asking a company that he's teaching, why, is it, uh, why does it seem strange to you? Well, Saul, at one time it seemed strange to you. It's amazing, though, how when we receive teaching, it undoes the ignorance in our religious lives. So here's this same Saul asking the question that was asked of him. The empty tomb transformed Jesus from a martyr to a savior. Without it, Christianity is a fraud and Christians are at best deluded. Of all men, most miserable, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, with it, Christians are also guaranteed a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Paul emphatically stated that Christ is risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He believed the tomb was empty because he knew its former occupant. He saw him. He heard him. He conversed with him. 
Every other religion lacks what Christianity has, and that is a living Savior, an eternal high priest ministering for his people in heaven. Not only that, Saul saw that one religion is not as good as another. That's what the world teaches. That fits the world's personality. The world believes in individuality and doing your own thing. So it's not surprising that when it comes to religion, they would have this attitude of go to the church of your choice. Any church will do. If any church will do, then who are the people who are going to hell? Some of those people in Matthew 25 said that they had cast out demons in Jesus' name. That's more than we say we do. We ain't casting out no demons and devils. But the Lord says, I will say to them in that day, depart from me. That's religious folk. He says, I will say, I never knew you. So all the time you spent living what you thought was a Christian life in the wrong place, the Lord will say, not only do I not know you, I never knew you. From the day you walked out and obeyed whatever it is you obeyed, I still don't know you. Mm. Paul saw that one religion is not as good as another. Now, I want you to think about what I'm going to say here or what Brother Webster says. Saul's religion was popular. Thousands of people throughout the world adhered to it. It was monotheistic, which means it served one God. And based upon objective revelation. It was more than a thousand years old. He was comfortable with it. He was trained in it. His family were members of it. His career and livelihood were tied to it. If anyone ever had good reason to stay in a religion, it was Saul. He was reaping all the benefits. He said he was, he stood head and shoulders above his peers. And as a result of his preparation, he did well in his life. So if anybody should have stayed where he was, it would have been Saul. Yet, his religion lacked one thing. It no longer pleased God. It no longer pleased God. The whole point of religion is to pay homage to the creator. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. To be saved from sin and to go to heaven at death. Romans 3, 23 and 6, 23. Saul's sins could not be forgiven under Judaism. Because Moses' law had been nailed to the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 and it had been replaced by the gospel Hebrews chapter 6 or 8 verses 6 and 7 the law no longer justified Romans 3:20 but brought a curse upon those who failed to keep even one statute Galatians 3:10 James 2:10 salvation now comes only through Christ. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So Saul needed to change to Christianity. Not Judaism. He needed to change from Judaism to Christianity in order to be saved. In order to go to heaven. Thankfully, we enjoy both freedom of religion and speech. Yet, equal access to every religion, hear me well, folks, equal access to every religion does not mean that every religion is equally valid. There are men out there every day who start churches. I passed a church the other day that said Wilkes Baptist Church. And I said, I wonder who Wilkes is. Who, who is Wilkes? I know what the Baptist Church stands for, but who in the world is Wilkes? And who gave him the right 
to have a church. I don't know who he is. I am assuming that it's some man whose last name is Wilkes. Because that's not unusual. That's not unheard of. McDonald's Chapel. That's some man's last name. Because in our society, we're in the habit of changing if we don't like what's going on somewhere. So it's not unusual for people today who say to themselves, well, I don't like what's happening here. I don't like the way they do things. I don't like the fact that we don't have no music. So I want to worship in a place where there are some instruments. So what do they do? They identify 15 or 20 people in the church and they say, do, do you like instrumental music? And they say, yeah, I like it. Well, let's go over here and start us a church where we can use us some in instrumental music. And that's the way more churches get started. And eventually, somebody breaks off from them to go and follow something else. And, and, and churches just keep multiplying and multiplying and multiplying based on bad decisions. And then here comes little old uneducated me. And when I say uneducated, I'm talking about uneducated in the word. See, if you're going to be religious, you need to know the word. If you don't know it, then you put yourself at the mercy of those who know a little bit of it. And generally, when people want to bring you with them, they tell you the only the part you need to hear. They don't tell you the whole thing. They, you like music? I do too. Come on, go with me. Folk, that's why we have over 400 different denominational groups existing in the world today. Now, it wouldn't be bad if they were all teaching the same thing, but they're teaching different things. How can one group say it's all right to be baptized and you must be baptized in order to be saved? And then another group say, oh, no, you can't. And they both say they worship it from the same book. Is it saying one thing to me and something else to you? I doubt it. The Bible says Jesus is not the author of confusion. He is a God of peace. Here's another church over here that says it's all right for women to preach. Here's another over here that says, no, it's not. Who's right? Here's one church over here that says, well, you don't have to be baptized. You really saved when you believe. And then you get baptized to show that you saved. And here's another church over here that says, oh, no, the Bible says that you are saved after. You baptize. You got to go down into the water and have your sins washed away before the Lord saves you. Now, my question is, which of those is right? Can everybody be right? Whatever you want to teach, just teach it, and the Lord knows my heart. Mm -hmm. He sure does know your heart because this one doesn't do anything but pump blood, folks. It doesn't think. This is the heart that thinks. This is the heart that the devil appears to and appeals to. And folk get mad when you preach like this. But you know what? If you have scripture to back up what you believe, you don't have to get mad. All you got to do is say, well, I believe what I believe because of what scripture says. That's why we don't have to be afraid because what we teach is what's here. You know, somebody said when you lie, you got to remember that lie because when you have to cover it up, you got to remember what you said. But when you tell the truth, you don't have to strain yourself to remember what the truth is. It's the same all the time. How in the world can anybody believe today that any church will do? I want to know what that kind of language is in here. Here's what's in the scriptures that Colossians chapter 1 verses 18 and 24 say that Jesus is the savior of the body, which is the church. I'm amazed. I don't think Jesus had any problem with grammatics. I don't think Jesus had any problem with not knowing how to syllabicate. He put in here exactly what he wanted to put in here. And he says the church is his body. How many bodies you got? 
The religious world must look like a freak to Jesus. One head and 400 bodies. <clears throat> and I know some of you are saying, well, no, 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 that's not it, Brother Anthony, because all of them are the body of Christ. Well, how can all of them be the body of Christ when they're not listening to the head? See, your body doesn't listen to what my head tells it. Your body listens to what your head tells it. And the same thing is true of the church. The church listens to what the head says. Christ is the head. So what gives a man, I don't care how big his cross is. I don't care how fine his life is. I don't care how long he's been around. What gives him the right to have a church? The next time somebody tells you they got a church, ask them how much they paid for it. Because according to Acts chapter 28, 20, and verse 28 and 29 and following, the price of a church is blood. That's what Jesus paid for the church. He went to Calvary and he died for it. He shed his blood. So just anybody who can go to the bank and get a loan can't have a church. That's a difference. You may be talking about building a building. The building is not the church. It's us. The called out from the world who make up the church. And I'm here to tell you today that Saul learned that one church, one religion, is not just as good as another. So you can't just walk out your front door and look left or right and see if you see a church and then flip a coin to decide which one you're going to go to and go there. And yet that's the way most folk choose churches. They are either brought up in that church from their childhood. So when they found out what they were religiously, it was too late to question it. They had already been indoctrinated. And I've told you before, when you teach somebody the wrong thing first, when you teach them the right thing, it sounds wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I got to go and conclude. I, I can't even, Lord have mercy. I want to finish this, but it got good now about where I am. Because we need to understand that God is not going to be merciful when we disobey him. So we don't have the right, folk, to say, well, if I'm not in the right place, the Lord knows my heart. And he going he gonna, he gonna to see, he going to fix it for me. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say in the judgment he's going to fix it for you. It says he's going to say to you, depart from me. I have never known you. And that's why so many are going to be surprised and say, Lord, you don't know me. Well, let me help you to remember me. I'm the one who cast out demons in your name. That's me. I did many wonderful works in your name, Jesus. That's me. And Jesus will say, depart from me. Not only do I not know you, I have never known you. I'd rather start you to thinking now than have you looking at me in the judgment saying, you know what? You never told me that. I came to the church where you preached every Sunday and you never told me that where I was needed to be checked out. Not in terms of what I think, but in terms of what the Bible says about what you believe religiously. You don't have a right to believe anything you want religiously. Well, if you do, then don't go toting this around. Leave this at the house and say this is my church and I, I, I call the shots here. I make up my own rules. But if you're going to say it's the Lord's church, then the least you can do is abide by what's in here. That's the least you can do. And if you're not going to do that, then lay that down and go and have your fun. One church is not as good as another. Thankfully, we enjoy freedom and religion of speech, but that does not mean that religions are equally valid. We must be discerning. Hebrews 5.14, only Christianity has Christ as high priest and mediator, Hebrews 4.14 through 16, Hebrews 9.24 through 28, 1 Timothy 
5. Christ's blood in his body, the church, Ephesians 1.3. One religion today is not as good as another. A Christless religion is not as good as Christ's religion. Colossians 1.18, we just quoted that. A cult is not as good as the church. Colossians 2.8. A church teaching false doctrine is not as good as one teaching truth. John 8.31 32, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. A church that hurts people is not as good as one that helps people. Galatians 6.10, a dead church is not as good as a live church. Revelations 3.1, we should not be satisfied with less than the religion Jesus established, which is the church of the New Testament. The same church that Saul persecuted. And laid waste. The Bible says that he did. Whew. Lord have mercy. I got to make a decision here. Okay. Okay. I made it too. Lord help me make it. Saul said that conversion is not an immediate miraculous experience. On the Damascus road. Saul had an unrivaled religious experience. He saw the risen Savior. His conversion process began there, but like Jesus' resurrection, it was not completed until the third day. Well, this question comes up. Why would Jesus wait three days to send Ananias to Saul? Well, Christianity is a taught religion, folks. It's not a caught religion or a bought religion. It's a taught religion. Matthew 28, 19, John 6, 44 and 45. And a person is not taught until he understands facts and assimilates meaning to those facts. To believe Saul needed time to process what he had seen and heard. See, that, that, that's what the, the, the churches of the world don't give you time to do. They get you caught up in a frenzy of emotionalism. And while you dancing and shouting, they say, don't you want to come to Jesus? Yes, I want to come to Jesus. But when you say out of emotionalism, and because the music is sounding good, and because everybody's shouting or doing something that you are ready to come to Jesus, that's not biblical. Amen. When you convert to Jesus, it's not about emotionalism. You have to understand what you're doing. Listen to Jesus. Jesus says, any man who comes to me and is not willing to love me more than his mama and his daddy and his sister and his brother and yea, even his own life cannot be my disciple. I don't care how happy you can get. I don't care how much you shout. The question is, do you love Christ more than you do family? Because Jesus knows that you may be getting ready to cut from family. Because they're teaching the wrong thing religiously. And you are concerned about your soul. And what he's saying is, will you leave them if you have to? Or do you love mom and daddy so much that you will let mom and daddy take you to hell? Believe in something that's not in here. That you have never questioned even. You just took what mom and daddy said. Now I want to know which one of you who having grown up in your home didn't get to a place at a certain point in your life where you had to ask for yourself what you believe you had to decide when you moved out from mom and daddy and got your own family did you start making up your own mind about things or did everything you do still reflect what mom and daddy taught you well I don't know about you but I know about me I had to develop my own relationship with the Lord I couldn't live off my parents relationship with the Lord when I gained 30 years old I had to develop my own relationship. I had to know him for myself. Not through my parents. For myself. I had 
have to say, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe. You can't say mom and daddy believe it and I kind of believe it too. No. The time comes when you have to say, I believe that you were buried in the heart of the earth, that you would stay there three days, that you got up the third day. Now, I understand why some people don't do that individually because they can't. Their faith is their parents' faith. If mom and dad die today, they stop going to church tomorrow because they have no faith of their own, have no relationship with God of their own. But to repent, Saul needed to think of the persecution he had perpetrated and be deeply saddened over them, 2 Corinthians 17. To convert, he needed to count the cost of a decision, Luke 14, 28 through 32. Have you counted the cost? God does not favor rash decision. So even though you may think in the heat of emotionalism that you're making a good decision, God does not favor rash decision. You need to think. The Bible says in Proverbs 4, 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. But with all of your getting, get an understanding. So the Lord doesn't want you to just jump up saying, oh, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. There were several people who came to Jesus during his earthly ministry and said, Lord, you know what? I want to follow you. And Jesus said, maybe you ought to think about that. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. You want to go? And the Bible says many of those people turned around and did not follow him. So how is it any different for us today? When you walk out somewhere and somebody says, have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Have you thought about what you're going to have to give up? Have you thought about the life you are going to have to embrace? Nobody ever asked them that question. They just say, oh, we're so glad to have you because they see dollar signs. Here's another person coming to the church. That's another $25 a week. Oh, we had 100, now we got 101. Ain't we doing good? But see, that's not how God determines our seriousness. He determines it by whether or not we're willing to believe and repent and confess and to be baptized for the remission of sins. Does not favor rash decisions. Trembling and astonished on that roadside, he was in no condition to make such a life-altering decision. Christ usually draw, dawns upon sinners as a sunrise rather than coming upon them as a thunderstorm. In reading scripture, hearts open gradually to his love. As a rosebud opens to the warmth of the sun, Lydia's conversion in Acts 16 was different from Saul's. Even though she wasn't being prepared to be an apostle, in, 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 in her conversion is a typical conversion she saw no blazing glory she heard no heavenly voice but the Lord opened her heart through the power of the gospel as Paul preached according to Romans 1 16 and then finally we're too close now to, to not finish it Paul see how I did that Saul saw that faith Penitence plus baptism removes sin. Seeing is believing. And Saul saw Jesus alive. Yet the Bible does not indicate that Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. If so, for 72 hours, he was the most miserable saved man there ever was. When you consider Acts 9, 9 through 11, he did not rejoice as other saved sinners did in Acts 8.39 and 16.34. He had no peace with God according to Romans 5.1 and Colossians 3.15. He was penitent. He fasted. He agonized as he remembered the innocent people he'd hurt. As he thought of the sorrow and pain he had caused families by driving them from home. He remembered the spouses he had separated and the parents he had taken from their children. He thought of the faithful Christians he had compelled to blaspheme their Savior. 
He allowed not a morsel nor a drop to pass his lips. Normally, going without sustenance for so long would be exhausting. But Paul did not sleep. The scripture says he prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed. Are these the actions of a saved man? Jesus had told Saul that there was something he must do. Acts chapter 9 verse 6. So he waited to learn what that was. Upon arrival at the house on Straight Street. I like that. Lived on Straight Street. Upon his arrival at the house on Straight Street, the preacher, Ananias, Jesus, uh, upon arrival at the house on Straight Street, the preacher Jesus sent did not congratulate Saul on his newfound salvation or announce to him that he has successfully prayed through. Instead, Ananias asked Saul what he was waiting for. He said, what are you tarrying for, Saul? What are you waiting on? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts twenty two sixteen. One could say then that Saul's sins were removed not on the road to Damascus, but in the pool. In the pool. That's where he told him his sins would be forgiven. Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And then after his baptism, he ate something. He fellowshiped. He taught. Acts 9, 19. His agony was over. His sins were forgiven. He was at peace. He was now a Christian. For a man who couldn't see, Saul saw a lot, didn't he? Let me ask you this morning, how many of you now see what Saul saw? After all of this, how many of you can see what Saul saw? Are you still selfishly grasping to what you like? 